Welcome to Midday Magazine for Tuesday, July 25th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg's Ranger District hosted a science illustrator from the deserts of Arizona earlier this month. Trenton Jung packed his art supplies into a sea kayak and paddled through the wilderness as part of a Forest Service-sponsored artist residency program. As KFSK's Shelby Herbert reports, Jung hopes his outsider eyes will help inspire awe and appreciation for Southeast natural landscapes. Pine cones, whale vertebrae, a wolf skull. These are just a few things that make up the tableau Trenton Jung and his Forest Service colleagues have laid across a table for his students. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Uh, my name is Trenton Jung. I am an artist at residence. Uh, Chris Weiss is one of about a dozen Petersburg residents who turned up to the local library to learn about science illustration from Jung. He has the class sketching out some of the items on the table from memory. With swift strokes of a colored pencil, she's outlining a barnacle with her eyes closed. How about you, Chris? What are you drawing? Uh, I tried to draw the shell. Definitely looks like. Yeah. Yes. I think so. Yes. Zhang invites his class to take note of the colors and textures of all the natural objects on the table. The pitted seashells, the grainy bone, the fine points of the pine needles. This is his first approach to creating art as a science illustrator. He's shown his work in galleries across the United States and abroad. But this is his first time in Alaska. Yes, I really enjoy like just being amongst the trees and the moss and also being close to the ocean. So I always want to be close to the water, looking at tide pools, looking at the kelp and seeing what's underneath the next rock. Zhang says there's a gulf of difference between the rainforests of southeast Alaska and the sun-scorched southwestern United States, which is where he spent most of his life. But watery environments have always been central to his work. There's not a lot of love for like fish and little sea creatures. Like everyone loves like the the big lions and giraffes and elephants and like the the charismatic megafauna. So I was kind of drawn to all the creatures that usually get ignored or like often overlooked. The Forest Service threw Zhang into his favorite environment, head first. He came to Petersburg to make and teach art, but he started his residency learning how to kayak. So I went to the, the slough, um, wore dry suits and jumped into the water, rolled our kayaks over and then taught us how to like kind of self-rescue and pop back in. Megan McDermott is a wilderness ranger with the Forest Service and she supervises the Voices of the Wilderness program. She says the kayak rescue tutorial was to help prepare Zhang for a five-day journey to Tebinkoff Bay Wilderness off of Kyuyu Island. Zhang, like prior visiting artists, got to watch his Forest Service companions collect data in a process called Wilderness Character Monitoring. They come alongside, they see what we do, and they create some piece of artwork with the intention of inspiring other people to care about this place. Hopping from island to island, Zhang took in the stark beauty of the land. On the final day of the trip, the group came upon a couple of humpback whales, a mother and her calf. That was the big highlight for both the artist and his Forest Service escorts. I had never seen wild whales before. Um, I also enjoyed just the quiet and solitude and just being able to like be outside and not have any distractions. All the while, Zhang was taking notes 
McDermott enjoyed watching him paint and sketch out the trip, literally as it was unfolding. It's really fun to watch his process and the scientific element of it, documenting surroundings, not just drawing, so it's cool. But all that note-taking wasn't just for his own benefit. I took a small handmade sketchbook out and took lots of notes in it, used that to create little drawings and paintings while I was out in the fields, and then also took reference photos and um, used those for my larger project. That art project won't be a slice of cake. It'll take him at least six months to finish, but it'll kind of look like one, a slice of forest cake. He's mapped out a large painting demonstrating the layered ecosystems of the Tongass National Forest. At the top, the tree canopy descending into a tidal zone crawling with small sea creatures. Those shallow pools will bleed into the final layer, a kelp forest on the ocean floor. Zhang says all of this was inspired by one moment on his five-day trip into the wilderness. I just caught a glimpse of the trees and rocks and see it all kind of within one layer because that kind of really defines like, the Tongass forest where there's lots of intermeshing of like the forest and ocean. Zhang plans to complete the painting by next January. It'll be installed in Petersburg's Forest Service office alongside all the artwork from past residencies. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. An insect infestation responsible for defoliating thousands of acres of the Tongass National Forest is abating. Scientists with the Forest Service believe that the black-headed budworm, whose numbers surged over the past three years, is now in decline. And while it's not clear how much lasting damage was done by the insect, there's a good chance that some parts of the forest may emerge from the infestation better off. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. I caught up with Gordy Williams by cell phone while he was riding the state ferry Lakanti from his home on Killisnew Island in Angoon to Juneau in mid-July. It was a perfect day for a cruise up the Inside Passage and a perfect day to see the widespread damage caused by the black-headed budworm. You know, I'm looking at Chichikov and Baranov. There are some pretty big impacts on the east side of these islands. Those impacts are acre upon acre of defoliated hemlock trees. Wide swaths of brown striping the otherwise endless green of southeast Alaska. The tree's needles consumed by tiny voracious caterpillars who are fueling their eventual transformation into the budworm moth. Williams worked for years in the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He understands that budworm and its partner in crime, the hemlock sawfly, have a role in the forest. But this latest event he considers extreme. The Forest Service estimates 685,000 acres were defoliated by insects in the last three years. It's a natural cycle, but when it does get ramped up like this, it does have a pretty significant effect on the ecosystem. So what our curiosity is at this point and our concern is what are the impacts of this radically thinned out forest canopy in so many areas? You know, that's what provides winter cover for deer and other animals and it going to impact stream temperatures and that kind of things. This part of Chatham Strait is notorious for winter storms, huge sou'easters that blow right up the channel between Admiralty and Baranoff Islands and can make this ordinarily pleasant ferry ride a bit of a stomach churner. Hemlock sawfly stressed these trees in 2018 and 2019. The black-headed budworm infestation followed in 2020. Forest Service entomologist Liz Graham described it as a one-two punch to the forest, putting it on the ropes. 
The weather may have finished the job. It definitely seems to be on some more extreme sites, too, the ones that are really heavily exposed. Um, and so I do think that it's a little bit more like compounding impacts where there was heavy defoliation and then maybe on top of that, a big windstorm or ice storm, and that really kind of stripped the, the last of it. And so I do think that that's why we have seen some of those areas with really more dense mortality, that it's uh, there's been more than one event there. Graham said that depending on the area, up to half of the hemlock trees may have died. Although this sounds like a high toll, Graham's colleague, silviculturist Molly Simonson, says on a forest-wide scale, the damage is limited. Most areas are unaffected, and some forest die-off is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, trees do die, whether it's whether it's um, clusters of them, you know, during a particular event, or whether it's just individually over the course of that forest development. But um, you know, it contributes to nutrient cycling within the ecosystem, and there's always going to be other trees in the understory waiting to take over that space. There's regeneration underneath those dominant trees that are just waiting to take over, and they'll capitalize on that. The last major black-headed budworm infestation in the Tongass was in the 1950s, and good data are hard to come by. Liz Graham says tree ring studies could help her identify the timing of the budworm cycle, but humans are throwing new variables in the mix. Climate change, or specifically the number of frost-free days, could play a role in outbreaks, but warmer weather can also disadvantage budworms. The budworm populations actually extend all throughout the Pacific Northwest, and so uh, the outbreaks that we've been experiencing here have really just been happening in southeast Alaska and haven't extended into B.C., and so some of the research we've been looking at, it might be actually too warm down there, so it could be that we're in this perfect little climate window right now for, for budworm outbreaks. Although the outbreak in southeast Alaska is subsiding, there are some areas where budworms are peaking, notably Juneau and Haines, Picture a slow-moving budworm tsunami that began on Prince of Wales Island and traveled north. Defoliation is not certain death, however. Trees that were stripped near Gordy Williams' home on Killisnew Island are sending out new buds this year, as are many along the route of the Lacanti as it steams up Chatham Strait. We'll just have to see how many of those trees can come back and how long it takes. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Shishalin Volcano erupted again over the weekend sending an ash cloud 37,000 feet into the air. The ash cloud has since dissipated and alert levels have decreased. But scientists say volcanic activity could ramp up again. Matt Lowen is with the Alaska Volcano Observatory. He says Shishalden, located on Udemac Island in the eastern Aleutians, started erupting earlier this month and has had four large ash cloud eruptions since. Lewin says they are starting to recognize eruptive patterns at the volcano, making it easier to predict when Shishalden could erupt a large ash plume. The AVO says they don't know how long Shishalden volcano will erupt. Previous eruptions have lasted weeks to even months. It's called Weaving Our Pride, a year-long blanket weaving project that celebrates Juno's LGBTQ plus community led by master flinket weaver Lily Hope. So who can be part of this project? Every person who wants to be part of something bigger. Hope says the project gives youth of all identities and supportive adults a chance to sit side by side to create a shared work celebrating pride, community, and self. The work is now underway. 
Over the next year, a team of six weavers will, will be spending several days a week at the Zach Gordon Youth Center to assist in making two blankets, one in the traditional raven's tail style and one in the more modern Chilkat style. We're going to do bands of rainbow color and do a follow the leader kind of deal. So the mentor weaver will weave one row and the student will come behind and weave exactly the same row. Anyway, it's going to be pretty epic. Next summer, dancers will wear them for the first time at Celebration, a biannual Southeast Native Dance Festival held in Juneau. After Celebration, the robes will remain at the youth center to be worn for special ceremonies that include new names and coming out parties as well as significant pride events. Only young people can wear them. The cool thing is that three of these six mentor weavers identify as queer. One mentor weaver has queer children, and the space that's being held by these weavers is safe, healing, affirmative, inspiring. Hope says in traditional Southeast Native cultures, weavers are taught that their work was a sacred art in which they were instructed to never weave in anger, but instead channel prayers and feelings of love into their work. Hope believes projects like Weaving Our Pride can bring positive, lasting change to the community. The Ninilchik Village is the recipient of a Biden administration funding program for tribal small businesses. The plan, the tribe plans to use the money for an equity and venture capital program for engineering companies, according to a report from the White House. The State Small Business Credit Initiative provides money to states, territories, and now tribes to promote the small business sector. Ninilchik was one of 15 tribes announced as recipients in late June. A White House statement says these are the first small business credit awards given directly to tribal governments. The money comes from the 2021 American Rescue Plan Act and totals $73 million given to 39 tribal governments. The White House statement says these investments in Native communities and tribes are a response to disproportionate economic hits to Native-owned businesses during the pandemic. The Ninilchik tribe has been approved for about $700,000 to operate a venture capital program. It says it plans to make direct co-investments in com- companies providing engineering-related services. The Inupiaq community of the Arctic Slope in Utgavik is also a recipient and is expected to receive $2.9 million. Representatives from the Ninilchik Traditional Council did not respond to requests for comment. For KFSK News, I'm Hannah Floor. Coming up, local and marine weather.